All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Parsha. January 26, 2022. Today is a Wednesday, and we actually have some ground to make up because I still think we're one reading behind. It's been chock full of details and laws, hence the name Mishpatim, which is the name of the Torah portion. Not so much narrative, lots of laws and lots of uh, intriguing points of conversation. So I'm going to share my screen with y'all and we'll be on the same page to study Mishpatim. Okay, here we go. Let's get into reading number three, which is where we are up to. So my goal today is going to catch, be, will be to catch up third and fourth readings. Let's see if we can do it. Exodus chapter 22, verse number four. If a man leads his animals into a field or a vineyard, I'm gonna I'm gonna highlight the pattern that we've been having with these laws in a moment. Okay, if a man leads his animals into a field or vineyard, or lets his animal loose, so whether he led him led led the animals intentionally or just didn't watch them, and it eats in another's field, and he ate someone else's apples, the best of his field or the best of his vineyard, he shall pay. In other words, without getting into the details of what that means, because there's a whole Talmudic conversation about that, like a massive conversation about what exactly it means, there's liability. Bottom line is, there is liability for the owner of the animal. So if your animal goes and eats your neighbor's vegetables and their whatever, you're on the hook. You got to pay for it. You're not, it's not my fault. It's my animal. Like, sue the animal. You're on the hook for what the animal, the damage that the animal causes. So the pattern that I want to point out is these are all cases. When I say all, we just did one. But I mean, going back to yesterday's conversation as well, these are all cases of forms of damage that incurs a liability. So whether it's your, whether it's you, not you specifically, but whether it's the person who injures, directly injures someone, whether it's their animal that injures someone, whether it's their animal that injures another animal, whether it's their pit that they dug or uncovered and didn't cover that injures someone or an animal, whether it's, what else did we talk about? Whether it's, um, I don't remember. Okay, in this case, whether it's the animal that's damaging, that's harming or or depleting someone else's field or vineyard, in all of these cases, there's liability. Let's continue. Now let's talk about fire. The liability of fire. If a fire goes forth and finds thorns and a stack of grain or standing grain or the field be consumed. I'm sorry. Let me try that again. If a fire goes forth and finds thorns, that's kind of the idea that you lit a fire and then it picked up steam. And then a stack of grain or standing grain or the field be consumed by that fire that you lit that one lit, the one who ignited the fire shall surely pay. You can't say, like with the animal, not my fault, the animal did it. Don't blame me, Sue Betsy. No, that's not how it works. You can't say, I didn't didn't burn down. I burnt down your field. I burnt down your, I didn't. I lit a fire over here on my property. I have no idea what you're talking about. I lit a fire here. It burnt down your field. I'm so sorry for you. I didn't do anything. That's not how it works. Bro, if you, if you lit a fire and it, it, it just keeps, because the nature of fire is it spreads. If you lit a fire and it spreads, you can't, you can't say, you know, you can't plead innocent over here. You're on the hook for all of the damage that is incurred. I, I'm sure I shared this last year in regard to fire, last time we studied this. There's a beautiful idea, beautiful insights regarding the liability of fire. The, the Talmudic commentaries discuss whether the liability, like what is the, what are the parameters of the liability of fire, of, um, yeah, of, of the responsibility of the one who lit the fire? So one opinion says, that fire, the liability of fire is like an arrow, like when you shoot an arrow, right? The other one says, or your money. Or yodai. It's like your hand is doing it. I forget already that, okay, I'm forgetting now the dispute. But one says, it's an interesting concept. It's like when you, when you shoot a, a, an arrow, 
right? So think about it. You couldn't, you couldn't say, you couldn't plead innocent. Say, I just, all I did was I pulled the arrow back and let it go. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't hit that thing. I didn't, I didn't hurt that person. You can never say that, right? Obviously, you're responsible for that. In modern, in modern times, right? A gun. You can't say I, I, I didn't hurt that person. I just, I just moved my finger. I just, I just, I just pulled the trigger. I didn't, I didn't hurt that person. Of course, when you pull the trigger, it causes the mechanism, whatever, and, and it shoots the bullet, and then, it, and then it hit that person. God forbid. So, the same thing is true with fire. You can't say I just lit a fire. I didn't burn down the guy's field. I, I didn't like set the field on fire. I just did it over here. It's not how it works. What happens here, if it spreads, you are on the hook for the entire damage. I think the other opinion is it's like your hand. It's like every moment of the way, it's like you're lighting it. Every single inch that it burns, it's like you're directly lighting it all along the way. Which then begs the question, how do you light Shabbat candles before Shabbat? I, I mean, I know how you light it, but halakhically, how is that okay? Because if it's like you're constantly burning the fire, you're constantly igniting the fire, well then, <coughs> it's like you're light, you light it before Shabbat, but it's burning on Shabbat, the, the candles are, the Shabbat candles are, so it's like you're lighting a candle on Shabbat, which you're not supposed to do, so what's, what's the deal with that? So to that, the commentators explain, no, that all of the, it is like you're doing it, but all of the subsequent unfolding of the fire, it, it's like, it's, it's as if it was done in that first moment, so the entire lifespan, and this is what I want to get to, the entire lifespan of the fire retroactively is included in that first moment of combustion when you first lit that thing. So, for example, a case of arson, right? So a case of arson. I listened to a very fascinating podcast some months ago about an, an arson, uh, a, a, um, a spree of arsons in California, Southern California, and ultimately the person that was convicted of the crime was a fire investigator. It was a fire investigator who was lighting the fires. It's a crazy story. Anyway, his, uh, his calling card, his signature was, he did, um, took like matchbooks. He created this whole thing where it was like a slow, um, not sure what the, and an incendiary device that would ignite slowly, kind of like, he lit, obviously he lit something, but then it would like take a little bit and then it would burn and then catch something else on fire and then catch something else. And he would go into like, I don't know, like fabric shops and, and put this device in like the, the bins that had, um, you know, like the, like the pillow stuffing, you know what I'm talking about? Like, um, the foam or not the foam down, down, not, well, not necessarily the down, like the synthetic stuff, the synthetic, yeah. you know, whatever it is, like the polyfill, like polyfill stuff. I think that's what it's called. Anyway, he would do that over there and then that stuff would catch on fire and that's like highly flammable. Maybe today it's not so flammable. I don't know if they ever, you know, if they kind of changed the formula, but then it was like, this is, you know, back, you know, some decades ago, the whole thing would go up and then it would shoot up to the, what, it was like, it's crazy stuff. You couldn't say like, I didn't, I didn't light the, I didn't light the store, the building on fire. I just, I just lit the match on fire. It doesn't work like that. And, and everything that will unfold in that entire story, in the entire um, fire, it's all included in that first act of ignition. Yeah. But there's actually a very, you mentioned a gun. There's actually a case underway now. Like Baldwin, you know, the actor. Yeah, 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 yeah. A gun and he's saying it doesn't matter. Yeah. And someone got killed. So, I, yeah, I haven't been following it in detail. But it's, it's going to be a little tricky for Alec Baldwin. It's going to be a little tricky for him because at the end of the day, he pulled the trigger. And I believe the last I heard, which is not recently, like some months ago or weeks ago, I heard something like there was no need for him to pull the trigger in that scene. They were just, um, they were just, what's it called? They were yeah, just. He's also not just the actor, he's the producer. So he's responsible for that. Yeah, well, I'm, but I mean, like even in his, it's a, I'm not, I'm not weighing down. I'm not qualified to, first of all, I don't know what happened. Number one, I wasn't there and I don't, I don't hear any evidence that this is no, obviously not firsthand information and I'm not qualified to, to, but I, what, to me, what's interesting is if, if, if the case is that he was told or there was an announcement made that the gun is clear. In other words, there's no, there no it's, a, it's a dummy, whatever it is, that there's not nothing loaded in the thing or there's, yeah, there's no, no bullets loaded. If he was told that, but if the scene didn't require him to actually pull the trigger, if they were just kind of block, I think they were like blocking out the, the frame and like the kind of like 
um, you're going through the motions of the scene before the scene was was to be shot. Um, no pun intended. Right before this scene was actually to be filmed, and he for some reason decided to pull that trigger. Just you know, because why not? Then there's an interesting question. On the one hand, he was told that there was nothing in it. On the other hand, who told him to pull the trigger? Right? It's an interesting, it's, it's a, I mean, and I don't want to reduce it to an interesting, you know, question because literally lives were lost and, and families, just incredible loss um, um, occurred. You know, the loss of a single life is, uh, is, is like destroying an entire world we have in our tradition. So I'm not, uh, I'm not just trying to make this an intellectual exercise. It's, it's, a real, it's a real story. It's a real tragedy. Um, but legally, I think it's going to be an interesting thing. Yeah, and it does, it does come up to this. Like, you know, he just pulled the trigger. He didn't know. He... Anyway, it's, uh, it's certainly a tragedy. All right, let's get back into our case. The Talmud, Bavakama, deals with all these cases. All oh, the fire, the, the pit, the animal that damages, and the, you know, the animal that gore, all of this stuff is, is, is dealt with at length in the Talmud. Now let's, let's move on to a different case. <coughs> this is not damages per se, this is theft. If a man gives his neighbor money or articles for safekeeping, so let's say the guy says to his neighbor, I'm going out of town, can you, can you hold this money for me or this item for me? And it is stolen from the man's house. You gave it to the neighbor to watch, and then the neighbor is robbed, and now your stuff is gone. Wonderful. So if the thief is found, he shall pay twofold. I think we had that already before, right? A thief that's busted has to, has to return the item or the value of the item, plus another um, t- time that amount as a, uh, we call it a knas, which is a monetary penalty. So there's, let's say, $100 worth of stuff was stolen. You got a restitution of 100 plus another hundred, and that's a fine. Let's continue. If the thief is not found, however, if the thief is not found, so now who, who do we suspect? Can't find the thief. So who do you suspect? Maybe the neighbor. I, I, the, la, the last time I saw this money or this item, I left it with my neighbor. He's saying he got, he got the robbed. How do I know that? There's no thief. We couldn't find the thief. So then... The homeowner, the guardian, the watcher comes under suspicion. So the homeowner shall approach the judges to swear he has to take an oath that he has not laid his hand upon his neighbor's property. So this is an interesting scenario where he takes an oath that I didn't do anything, I didn't steal. And at that point, he's clear, he's good to go. For any sinful word, for a bull, for a donkey, for a lamb, for a garment, for any lost object, uh, lost article, concerning which he will say that this is it. So I'm laughing because like the Talmud analyzes literally every verse of this, of every word of this verse. Lay pages and pages and pages of Talmudic discourse on one verse. Anyway, for any sinful word, for a bull, for a donkey, for a lamb, for a garment, for any lost article, concerning which he will say that this is it, the pleas of both parties shall come to the judges, and whoever the judges declare guilty shall pay twofold to his neighbor. On a very simple, superficial level, again, we're talking about theft. If the thief is busted, the thief lied. The thief said, no, I didn't steal it. But then he's found out to have stolen. He's, the judge declare him guilty, and he shall pay twofold to his neighbor. Oh, I'm sorry. Seems like we're still talking about the neighbor who uh, just pocketed the, the item that was given to him for safekeeping. So we're not talking about, there, there, was no, there was no robbery. It was the neighbor the whole time who just kept it. And so if he's busted, if he's found guilty, then he has to pay twofold to his neighbor that gave him the property um, in, the, in the beginning. Let's continue. If a man gives his neighbor a donkey, a bull, a lamb, or any animal for safekeeping, Hey, can you watch my, uh, my donkey? And it dies, breaks a limb or is captured, and no one sees it. No one saw how it happened. We don't know if there was negligence or not. I mean, we don't know. And the oath of the Lord shall be between the two of them, provided that he did not lay his hand upon his neighbor's property. In other words, he has to take a note that he did not directly harm the property or, or kill the animal, and its owner shall accept it, and he shall not pay. Again, Here's a situation where there's some suspicion, but there's no proof. 
And so the way it works in Jewish law in certain cases, and again, this is oversimplification because there are many details and nuances to this, pages and pages, literally, of Talmudic, Talmudic conversation about this. But the short version is that in cases where there's suspicion, but there's no proof, whether it's the guy who leaves his neighbor some stuff to watch while he goes on vacation, or whether it's, I mean, it's actually the same case. Whether the guy claims, sorry, it's all the same scenario. The neighbor gives his neighbor, the guy gives his neighbor something to watch while he goes out of town. And then he comes back, new, and he comes back to pick up his item, money, animal, whatever it is. And the neighbor says, I'm sorry, either scenario A, it was stolen, or scenario B, because it's now an animal, the animal died. The animal got injured. And we don't know, was it stolen? Right? Or did the guy pocket it? Was it actually injured, freak accident, or you know, did it just die, or was it somehow due to the negligence or abuse of the neighbor? We don't know. So in, in these cases, we give, since there's no proof that the neighbor did anything wrong, we allow the neighbor to be the one to make an oath, to take an oath, and then be relinquished from liability. Um, taking an oath in Jewish law is a, is a serious deal. It involves Torah and it involves like using, referencing, you know, divine, uh, you know, d divine justice and that sort of thing. It's not to be taken lightly. It doesn't mean that someone who's, you know, a ganif and a thief and a liar and a, and a you know, a malicious, whatever, cares about that. Maybe if they're doing that, they don't care about the oath either. Could be. But the oath was a pretty serious deal. And it's seen to be as somewhat of a deterrent. Like if somebody really did do the crime, maybe having to take an oath would be enough of a deterrent to, for them to cop to it and say, you know what, I did it, my bad, you know, here it is. Or, you know, I was negligent or I, you know, worked the animal too hard and it died and that sort of thing and just come clean with that. So I think the goal here is a little bit of pressure. If there's an opportunity to come clean, to come clean. Otherwise, he takes an oath. And if he's legit, then no problem taking that oath because he's not, he's not telling, the, he's, he's telling the truth. He's not lying. And then in that case, of course, he shall not pay. If, if he didn't do anything, if he swears that he didn't do anything wrong, he didn't steal it, he didn't hurt it, then he's off the hook. But if it is stolen from him, right? He shall pay its owner. Hold on, if it's stolen from him, why should he pay its owner if it's, if it's stolen from him? So here we're talking about a case, a different case, where it is, where he was paid to watch it. Let's see if Rashi clarifies that. No. But we have to say <coughs> that we're talking about here of a, greater, a case of greater liability. Well, you can understand this two ways. Either... We're talking about a case where he himself stole it, but that wouldn't mean, that wouldn't, that doesn't make sense if it's as if it's stolen from him. From him means the guardian who is watching it. Stolen from him, he shall pay its owner. Well, then maybe, oh, or maybe you could say he, the, the thief, shall pay its owner. Or you could say if it's stolen from him in a case where there is greater liability for watching it, because let's say, for example, he was paid to watch the animal, then he's on the hook. If, you get, if you're doing a paid service, then if it's stolen, that's literally what you're getting paid for. That's where your insurance comes in. Then you're on the hook to pay the owner. Again, I'm, I'm giving scenarios. All of these are discussed in the Talmud. These are different ways of understanding it. These verses are open-ended enough where there's a lot of room for um, different understandings. And in total, there are four scenarios of guardianship. Either an unpaid guardian, a paid guardian, a borrower, or a renter. These are four different cases that are in all of these verses. You can, the Talmud says you can decipher these four cases, and each one has a different level of liability. The unpaid guardian has the least threshold of liability. You ask someone to do you a favor, what, what can you really demand from that guy? I mean, you were going out of town, you asked your friend for a you asked your neighbor to do, to do a, I can't even speak. You're asking your neighbor to do you a favor to watch your animal while you're gone. All right, as long as he's not like hurting the animal directly, what, 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 what claim do you have? He's, he literally did you a favor. If you pay someone to watch your item, you expect a level of service because you paid them. You literally paid them for their service. There's a much higher level of liability. If someone borrows your animal, they're on the hook for everything. You borrow it, 
course you have all the liability. You rented it, maybe a little bit less liability because you did pay money for it. So you, you paid money to, to relinquish a little bit liability because the owner also gained because they got the money for the rental. So you see there's, diff there's four different cases of, of custodianship, guardianship, unpaid guardian, paid guardian, borrower, and renter. There are four scenarios in which one legally comes into possession of someone else's property, and each one will have a different level of liability. Okay, if it is torn apart, in other words, let's say the neighbor gave, a guy gave his neighbor an animal, and then in the middle of the night, it's a, it's, let's say it's an outdoor animal, in the middle of the night, God forbid, a, a, a lion comes by and rips apart the donkey. What are you going to do? He shall bring witnesses, witness for it. For the torn one, he shall not pay. It's not his fault. Not his fault. It's an act of God slash an act of a lion. I mean, how do you, how do you prevent that? I mean, assuming he did everything right, it's, it's a freak accident. What are you going to do? So he's, he's not liable. And if a person borrows, now, now it's clear that it's a case of borrowing. If a person borrows an animal from his neighbor and it breaks a limb or dies, if its owner is not with him, he shall surely pay. So even if it breaks its limb or dies when you borrow the animal, you can say, it's not my fault. I, I borrowed an animal. You know, the, the best example I can give is like borrowing a car from someone. I mean, that's, that's a more modern example. Let's say you borrow your, a friend's car. Like, hey, I need a car. Can I borrow your car? Yeah. And then you're driving down the street. You're not driving recklessly, but suddenly something happens to the car. The car stalls. It doesn't work. It doesn't, who's on the hook? It's a little bit of an uncomfortable scenario, right? It's a little bit of a, like an awkward thing. Cause like on the one hand, the guy just borrowed it now and you want him on the hook for the repair of the car. Uh, that's one argument. The other argument is, yeah, you borrow the car, you take all liability. I mean, when you rent, even when you rent a car, you're paying the money, you still are on the hook for, for liability, for insurance, for, to, for any damage that happens to the car. Unless you have insurance, that's why we have insurance. You get through them, through your own insurer, whatever. The point here is, when you borrow an animal, no matter what happens, you're on the hook for it. Accident, no accident, doesn't make a difference. He shall surely pay. But if its owner is with him, then he shall not pay. That's a wrinkle. If you didn't borrow the animal outright, if you're borrowing the animal, but the owner is also with you, so you're both kind of engaged in whatever the animal is doing. Let's say you borrowed an animal to plow a field and the owner is with you because he's also doing some plowing or whatever it is. If the owner is with you, then you're like, hey, I, I, I didn't like borrow this and take it away from you. You were, still, you were standing there the whole time. I didn't do anything. Don't look at me. It's not, it's not, it's not my fault that the animal died or hurt itself. Like, don't, don't, don't come after me. That's kind of the way halacha, the Torah looks at it. All right, if it is a hired animal... It has come for its hire, which doesn't mean much in English. If it's a hired animal, it has come for its hire. Let's see what that means according to Rashi. <clears throat> yeah, it means there's a different level of liability. It's not borrowed, but it's hired. Hire means it's rented. You paid money for it. So it's not, you're not borrowing it for free. You're renting it for cash, right? So that's the point. He does not have the status of a borrower to be liable for accidents beyond his control. When you borrow, you're on the hook for all liability. You borrowed something, no matter what happens, you got you to you pony up the cash. If you rented, it's a little bit different. But what is his status? Is it like an unpaid custodian or like a paid custodian? So there's a difference of opinion. Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, we're not going to get into this now again. Talmud. Bava Metziah, it's Bava Metziah, not Bava Kama, Bava Metziah, 90B. That's where that dispute is, uh, is described at length. Okay, let's continue. Again, we're going to try to cover some ground today. Um, here we go. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall provide her with a marriage contract as a wife. Of course, you know, we can wonder why, what's with the marriage thing. The idea here is that it's kind of, obviously she doesn't have to marry her. She doesn't, sorry, she doesn't have to marry him. She doesn't have to agree. But if she agrees, 
then he is encouraged by law to marry her because the understanding is it might be hard for her, again, back in the day, whatever, to find a husband in this, in this scenario. So if he was already, you know, he was, he was with her, so then he should marry her. Now, if her father refuses to give him to her in marriage, he shall weigh out money according to the dowry of the virgins, which means that the guy has to kind of recompense for... I mean, look, we're talking about, a, it seems like a consensual situation. Nonetheless, uh, maybe we should look up Rashi here and see, uh, see some clarification what the, what the monetary situation is going on. Uh-huh. He speaks to her heart until she yields to him. So it seems like it's not fully consensual. There's a little bit of persuasion here. Um, according to the dowry of the virgin, which is fixed at 50 silver shekels. In the case of one who sees the virgin and forcibly lies with her, it says a minute, 50 shekels. Okay. Again, it doesn't seem like a case of forced assault. Nonetheless, there is some measure of financial obligation here, even if he's not marrying her. That's what it seems like. Okay, let's continue inside. You shall not, again, we're just moving across the spectrum of various laws. You shall not allow a sorceress to live. Someone who practices sorcery, which is akin to idolatry, conjuring up, um, I don't know if the right word is conjuring, but summoning um, spirits and forces, which the Torah prohibits, that is something that is not okay in Jewish law and even potentially a capital crime if it involves um, anything that smacks of idolatry, which is idolatry is a capital crime in, in Torah. Verse 18, whoever lies carnally with an animal shall surely be put to death. So that is also a capital crime to uh, be intimate with an animal. Next, he who slaughters a sacrifice to the gods shall be destroyed. I guess that would also mean death penalty to bring a sacrifice to, idol, to idols. Except the only valid sacrifice is to the Lord alone, is Tasha. All right, again, moving laterally, moving quickly through various themes. You shall not mistreat a stranger, nor shall you oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So no mistreatment, no oppression. Why? You were strangers. The message here is you, you should be able to relate to what it means to be a stranger and therefore don't take, don't, don't harm, don't take advantage of, etc. the stranger. Let's continue verse 21. You shall not oppress any widow or orphan. Again, a sensitivity to the one who might be a little bit uh, vulnerable. Do not oppress a widow or the orphan. Number 22. If you oppress him, if you do oppress him, beware. Here's a warning. God, God calls out a warning. For if he cries out to me, I will surely hear his cry. He meaning a non-gender specific reference to widow or orphan. Right? If the person, if they, right? If you press the person, the widow or the orphan, and they cry out to me, oh boy, that's not going to be good. My wrath will be kindled, and I will slay you with the sword. And you and your wives will be widows and your children orphans. You want to oppress the widow or the orphan? That's going to happen to you, says God. You're right. Again, I don't even want to say the word you. But God is saying that the one who oppresses the widow or the orphan, they are going to pass away. And then their wife will be a widow and their children will be orphans. Pretty, very strong. Very strong about this, uh, what we would call um, this social justice. I don't know if it's social justice, but it means... Taking care, yeah, Donna. It's getting going back a few about the capital punishment yeah. for idolatry. So I mean, God gave capital punishment to all the Jews after the golden calf, and then He pardoned them. Correct? Yeah, that's what He wanted to do. He said to Moses, "He's going to kill. He's going to just get rid of the people and start again from Him." And Moses says, "No." By the way, to clarify, there were individuals, many individuals, who died in the aftermath of the golden calf. The ones who were directly involved in the creation and the idea and that sort of thing, the ones who were directly hands-on involved, they perished. They, they, they did lose their lives. Um, but 
there was a collective punishment that was intent that, that was initially intended on some level, and then that was the one that was pardoned. Yeah, but yeah, the sin of the golden calf is a very big deal, capital crime. All right, when you lend money, now again, just moving, just moving across the spectrum here. When you lend money to my people, to the poor person who's with you, you shall not behave toward him as a lender, i.e., you shall not impose interest upon him. I read an article. I didn't read the article. I read a headline for an article where somebody said something, to, 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 to something along the lines of, you know, I borrowed 30,000. I, 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 I didn't take out student loans. I didn't go to college. I went to rabbinical college, which is not the same thing. All right. Um, <laughs> I went to the Rabbinical College of America in Morristown, New Jersey, amongst other yeshivas that I went to. London, Miami, New York. Anyway, but the one in, the one in, um, in Jersey, New Jersey was called rabbinical, rabbinical College of America. Anyway, no student loans here. But my understanding is student loans are very, can be very problematic. So this headline that I read or this whatever article was something along the lines of like, I borrowed 30000 I don't know when. But over the years, I've paid 30000 But somehow, I have a debt of another like fifty or 60000 but due to the interest that accrues. Now, I, I, I didn't read it. I saw a headline. I don't know if it's true or not. But it sounds pretty, if it's true. Is that, does that sound like it could be true with interest? It's the same like credit cards. It's really usurious rates, 20% credit cards. It's, it's usury. Right. But, you know, I think I mentioned this last year, what I like about this this text, this paragraph, it negates, you know, Shakespeare saying, we're Shylocks, right? <laughs> Correct. Well, okay, once, uh, it just says you can't charge interest to, the, to your fellow, to your brother, your sister. But business otherwise, you can do. So it actually doesn't preclude it. Um, the truth is, the truth is, that Jews did charge interest and they were money lenders. That was the only thing they could do in certain parts of the world, certain times. Um, but the pound of flesh, no, that would never be done. I mean, I can't say never, but that's not, that wouldn't be a kosher practice. That wouldn't be um, a thing. Right? You can't physically, what is this, the mob? I mean, maybe. Remember we had an event a few years ago with the last Jewish mobster? I don't know if you guys remember that. Myron Sugarman. Uh, he, he was hilarious. I'm sure we have the recording up somewhere. He called himself the last Jewish mobster, and he was just an absolute riot. He was, um, I want to say 2019, 2020? No, probably 2019. Anyway, hilarious. Um, but yeah, there were, there, were, there were associations. I can't say that you know no one's ever done anything wrong, but the concept of charging interest is very problematic. I mean, yeah, it's business, whatever, but it can be devastating. In fact, one of the words, let's, let's, let me pull up the screen again here. One of the words for interest in the Torah is right here, neshech. Neshech is interest, neshech. You know what neshech also is related to the word? Neshech, neshicha, means a bite, a bite. And our sages liken it to a snake bite. What's a snake bite? So a person may not realize that, they're, that they've been bitten by a snake. Maybe. I don't know if that's true or not. But what happens is they're bitten by the snake and then the, the venom slowly seeps in and slowly wreaks its, uh, its damage to the person. God forbid, obviously. The same thing is true with interest. There's a little bite at first and you don't notice, but slowly, slowly it builds up until it can become devast The interest can become devastating and absolutely debilitating. So again, I'm not weighing in on... Um, on political policy and social policies and what the laws should be and whatever. We'll leave that up to, up, up to, the, to the experts, to the mavens, to the ones that know what, if this happens and that would happen and that would happen and who are thinking, you know, 12 steps ahead, hopefully. I'll leave that up to the experts. Just saying that Torah proscribes, I think that's the right way to say it, forbids lending money with interest to my people. Let's continue. If you take your neighbor's garment as security on a loan. Let's say, again, moving in a different, different direction a bit. So you lend someone money and you give them a garment as collateral. Until sunset, you shall return it to him. That means that um, 
means at sunset or right before sunset, before it gets dark, you should return it to him. Because it's his pajamas. That's the scenario here. For it is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. With what shall he lie? How's he going to go to sleep if you, if you have his PJs, right, as collateral? And it shall be that if he cries out to me, I will hear because I am gracious. Once again, God is defending the underdog, defending the borrower, defending the poor person who doesn't have money. So you lend the poor person money and the poor, poor person says, I don't have any collateral. I can't give you any other collateral. I can only give you this set of clothing that I'm not wearing now, but I'm going to need it tonight. But what are you going to do? I need the money. So I'm going to give you this article of clothing. The Torah says, go above and beyond your obligation or this becomes now your obligation, and give him back his garment. What kind of security is it if you give it back? It doesn't matter. you got to do the right thing. Security is security. Security is, is, yeah, security is one thing. But a person being able to sleep at night is, 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 is a very important deal. God says, oh, you don't want him to cry out to me because he has nothing to wear at night, and then I'm going to hear it, and then trouble is going to happen. You don't want that to happen. Better you give him the security back and figure out the loan some other way, then um, then uh, then him cry out to me. Okay, reading four. Got a few more minutes. Reading four. Oh, it's short. Okay, good. Relatively short. You shall not curse a judge. Neither shall you curse a prince among your people. So those in power, those in positions of authority, it might be, it might be. Um, Tempting to curse them, a judge, a prince, whatever. Torah says, don't. Your fullness offering and your heave offering. You shall not delay the firstborn of your sons. You shall give me. Let's understand this. This refers to Bikurim. The fullness offering means when your fruit, when your produce becomes fully ripe. That's the first fruits, Bikurim. You know, the first fruits you have to bring to the temple. So God is basically saying, make sure you don't delay bringing those. Heave offering refers to the truma, the first offering of the, of the produce, which is given to the Kohen. So there's the bikurim, the first fruits, and then truma, which is also a part, a, a percentage of the produce given to the Kohen. You shall not delay, you shall not alter the sequence, the sequence of their separation by delaying what shall come first and advancing what shall come later. Namely, one may not advance truma before bikurim or tithes before truma. There's an order. First bikurim, the first fruits, then truma for the Kohen, and then miser, tithing for the Levite. So first you have the bikurim, which goes to the... Um, the bikurim goes, I guess, to the... The first fruits are eaten by the owner in Jerusalem, actually. So whatever it is, first Bikurim, then Truma to the Kohen, then Miser to the Levi. Firstborn of your sons you shall give me, Rashi says. Now you don't have to actually bring your firstborn child, although maybe you do, but then you redeem him from the Kohen with five cells, five coins. We do this today. Till, till today we call this a Pinyin Haben. Um, okay, I, we have experience with that. We did Nassan. We got him pidyon habend up. Okay. Let's continue. So shall you do with your cattle and your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you may give it to me. And you shall be holy people to me. All of the above makes us holy. And flesh torn in the field you shall not eat. It's not kosher. It has to be slaughtered in a certain way. Rather you shall throw it to the dogs and hear the Torah takes compassion on the dogs. I should mention parenthetically, the Torah specifically calls out the dogs. If you have non-kosher meat, feed it to the dogs. Take care of the dogs. Why? It says in, um, in gratitude to what the dogs did during the Exodus. The night of the Exodus, death was all around Egypt. And yet it says, and we read it a few weeks ago, that that whole night, no dog barked, made any noise in the Jewish neighborhood. So as gratitude for the, to the dogs for not barking, we give scraps of meat, any non-kosher meat, no problem, feed it to the dogs. The Talmud says, by the way, that 
when you feed a dog, a stray dog, be careful that it doesn't get too attached to you. Because if it gets too attached to you, you're going to be feeding that dog forever and you may not want to do that. So the Talmud gives like good advice about how to make sure that dogs don't get too attached when you feed them. But you're supposed to feed dogs. Stray dogs, whatever. Feed them um, as, a, as a repayment. Also, what's interesting is the Talmud says, that same piece of Talmud, I forget which tractate it is, I was learning it recently. The Talmud says that a pig, a pig, you never have to feed a pig. Why? Because a pig will eat anything and everything. A pig takes care of itself, very self-sufficient. A dog is a little bit pickier. So a dog, you and I, we should go out of our way to make sure we hook up some dog, the dogs with some food. All right, back inside. Cats, what about cats? Doesn't discuss in that, in that conversation. Dogs and pigs are discussed, but not cats. Okay, back inside. Uh, Exodus chapter 23. You shall not accept a false report. Someone's testifying falsely in court. Don't accept it. Do not place your hand with a wicked person to be a false witness. Don't join up with someone else. Don't tag team on presenting false testimony. So if you're a judge, make sure you're not accepting a false report. In other words, interrogate the witnesses, cross-examine the witnesses, make sure that it's not a false report, number one. Number two, if you're tempted to join up, because you always need two witnesses, if you're tempted to tag team with someone else and, and produce false testimony, don't. Next, regarding judges, you shall not follow the majority for evil. You shall not respond concerning a lawsuit to follow many to prefer justice. Just because many are doing it doesn't mean that it's right. Typically, you follow the majority, but not when there's corruption going on. Let's see if Rashi clarifies this. I see. Interesting. Okay, let me, let me share with you the first thing that Rashi says. These are very long Rashis that are called from very long Talmudic discourse. So one way to understand this is you shall not follow the majority for evil when it comes to a verdict of guilt, for example, or not for example, when it comes to a verdict of guilt, for example, in a capital case, if the majority of the judges, there are 23 judges on a capital case, if 23 judges, the majority of 23, say guilty, that's not enough. There has to be at least a two-vote majority. Let me break this down. 23 judges, 12 say guilty, 11 say innocent. In America, it's a hung jury. Even if there's one that says you know, innocent, it's a hung jury. You have to have a unanimous verdict, but either way, in the American system. Not in the Jewish system. Achare Rabbim Lahatais tells us, this last phrase tells us you follow the majority. But the first part of the verse tells us you should not follow the majority for evil. What does that mean? When it comes to a negative verdict, a verdict of guilt and punishment, we don't follow the simple majority of one. You need a majority of at least two. So a 12-11 a vote is not sufficient to convict in Jewish law. 23 judges, if 12 say guilty and 11 say innocent, innocent. Because you need two, at least two. You have to have at least a 13-10. Go 13-11, but there weren't 24 judges, I'm just saying. It's got to be at least a two-judge two, um, two majority over the, other, over the other side. Okay, let's continue. You sh neither shall you glorify a poor man in his lawsuit. That means don't take compassion on the poor man and say, all right, fine, we'll give you the money. Law is law, order is order, and you can't just throw a case either way. You can't favor the wealthy, nor can you take compassion on the poor and say, well, you know what? You're right, even if he's not right. You have to go by what the law is and then take an extra layer of compassion on top of that. Reminds me of the famous story that I've told many times of Mayor uh, LaGuardia, who was Jewish. Italian last name, Italian dad, Jewish mom. So he was Jewish. And there was a snowstorm, a blizzard in New York City. This is back in the day. And I think it's LaGuardia. I think I have the right, the right name. Am I wrong? Let me see, Let me see if, I'm, if I'm right here. Um, 
Mayor LaGuardia Jewish. Let's see if that's the right guy. Yeah. I think it was Jewish. He didn't consider himself necessarily Jewish, but his mother was Jewish, so it makes him Jewish. Anyway, so Fiorello LaGuardia, the story goes, the legend has it, that he, uh, he was also a judge. And so there was a night that it was a blizzard and the judges couldn't show up or the judge couldn't show up. So he decided as mayor, he's going to step into the night court. And there was a case that came before him of a, of a grandmother, a bubby who had stolen bread, which at that point in time, maybe the 1920s or whatever it was, was a very serious crime in New York City. Very severe penalties for stealing bread. So he asked her, did you steal bread? She said, yes. Why did you steal bread? Because my grandchildren are hungry. So he found her guilty of the crime of stealing bread. She confessed. He found her guilty of stealing bread and levied the fine, which was a lot, a lot of money. And then he turned to the court and he said, and now I'm finding everybody present in the court X amount of money to give to her to cover the fee, to cover the fine. Why? For living in a city, for being okay to live in a city in which children are starving. I don't know if he was blaming the people in the courtroom specifically for like uh, an impoverished, you know, uh, society. But he was basically saying how we're all, we all need to step up at this point and give her the money to cover the fine, which covered the bread that she stole to feed her grandkids. That's the compassionate thing to do. So there are two layers. There's the legal and then the moral, or the legal and the extra legal. The legal is she's guilty. The extra legal is compassion. So the same thing is true here. When it comes to the poor person and the rich person, so you might be tempted to sway it in favor of the rich person because you want to curry favor. That's for sure not okay. But even if you want to sway the, the court case in favor of the poor person and say, look, they need the money, even if they're not, even if they're not justified in the, in, the, in the case, but let's just make the verdict go their way. Let's give them some extra cash. They could use it. And the company doesn't care. They're not going to feel it anyway. That's not okay. You can't do that. You have to go by what is right, by what the law is. If you want to be compassionate, that's another layer. It's an extra judicial, an extra legal layer. That can't be the law. The law is the law and the extra legal is the extra legal. Don't Confuse the two. That's the message of the Torah over here. If you come upon your, na- your enemy, sorry, your enemy's bull or a stray donkey, you shall surely return it to him. You see your na- your not only your neighbor, your enemy's animal wandering. Be like, oh, I don't. That's my enemy's donkey. Pfft. Let him figure it out. I don't like that guy or his donkey. Nope. You got to take compassion on the on the animal. You got to put your your beef. With the owner of the donkey, you got to push that to the side. You got to take care of this animal. You got to get the animal back home. If you see your enemy's donkey lying under its burden, another case, the donkey was loaded up too much and now it's like collapsing, it's struggling. Would you refrain from helping him? No, you shall surely help along with him. You have to help him unload the the burden from the donkey to alleviate the weight on the donkey's back. So the Torah is telling us here in these last several verses some moral and ethical teachings, right? We talked about um, compassion for the animal that's overburdened, talked about returning the animal home that's lost, even if it's your enemy's animal. We talked about not perverting justice by throwing it to the wealthy or throwing it to the, to the poor, but an extra legal layer of, of care and compassion and concern. We spoke about in the last reading, reading three, the idea of, let's pull it up. We spoke about um, the widow and the orphan, right? Not oppressing, not oppress a widow and an orphan. I'm going to hear their cry. It's not going to be good. And this reminds us of the Torah's moral compass. Even when it's not illegal, it's not only about law, it's about there's another, there's another layer to this, there's another layer to conversation. If I could follow the law and not be a mensch, also. The Torah encourages us, number one, to follow the law, to have a law that we follow. Number two, always be a mensch. Even if it's not, even if the court can't bust you on it, you're accountable to God Almighty, you got to do the right thing. All right, so that's a little bit for today. 
We're, we caught up. We did reading three and four. Four is for Wednesday. Today is Wednesday. So tomorrow, please, God, we'll pick it up with reading number five, maybe six also. We'll see how much we can do. All right. Any... Tomorrow is the JLI. Tomorrow is not happening. You are correct. Thank you for reminding me. Tomorrow is meditation from Sinai. Daytime in-person session. Correct. Meditation from Sinai. 12 to 1.15 tomorrow, live and in person, with bagels, lox, cream cheese, veggie spread. We got a whole lunch, flourish, and uh, I said lox already. Okay, yeah, that's tomorrow. So, yeah, so we'll pick it up Friday. I'm glad we did two today, even though we had to rush a little bit. Okay, good. What's the moral of the story? I'm just going to end, I'm just going to re reiterate the idea of being a mensch. Be legal don't don't do things illegal and be a mensch take responsibility look out for the welfare of the other person right don't seek to do others harm always seek their welfare these are kind of the guiding principles of torah in a world i'm just going to do this again we did this a few days ago also or yesterday in a world that was just completely immoral and corrupt in most societies then just abject corruption torah held the jewish people and by virtue of that, really all of humanity to a much, much higher standard. We're still trying to live up to that standard. All right, thank you for joining. And tonight, I hope to see you. Tonight's Torah Studies class. Tonight is in person, yes. Tonight's, yeah, with Babka, with live Babka. Tonight's class is called Put on the Blinders. Put on the Blinders and join me tonight at 7.30 to find out more about that. Okay, um, all right, we'll see you then. See you tonight, see you tomorrow, see you Friday. We'll uh, have lots of opportunities. Um, Donna, I'm going to email you soon, okay, with some stuff that, that we've been talking about. All right, we'll see you guys. See you, Sandrine. See you, Sarah. See you, Donna. Take care, everybody. Have a wonderful day. Bye, all. Bye, you too.